are you doing, sleep friends? It is time to start our journey to different parts of the world to see the best ways that we can sleep better, feel better, live better. Our sleep spotlight is now going to be in the country where I currently live, in Hong Kong. And there's a lot of scenarios that we're going to think about, mostly focusing today on our education system, which focuses so many challenges because of the sheer competitiveness of it all, but also because of its high academic standard. So yes, with every situation, there's a good and the bad. And we're going to delve into that now with our interview so that we can get the best tips. Stay tuned all the way to the end because after we have consolidated all the things we've learned in the interview, we will come up with the top three tips for students and parents out there. Hello everyone, welcome again to another episode of Sleep Well Around the World. And today we have a sleep spotlight on Hong Kong. Actually, Hong Kong has one of the most sleep deprived students all over the world. And uh, we're here now to interview Paul Campbell, who can shed some light on this topic. And maybe also through this conversation, we can share some tips to help students here in Hong Kong to sleep just a little bit better. A little bit about Paul. He is a curriculum coordinator and senior leader at an international primary school in Hong Kong. And Paul works with teachers and students to design learning experiences that are meaningful, center on international mindedness, foster well being, and are responsive to individual and collective needs. Paul is also an associate tutor at the University of Glasgow in Scotland, where he teaches and supervises students on master's programs in the School of Education. So happy to have you here, Paul. How are you doing today? Good, thanks. I'm doing well. Thank you, Melissa. It's great to be here. So thanks for having me. I'm so glad that um, we can together go for a discussion and be able to shed some light on actually what is going on here in Hong Kong. Because actually, Paul, you know, sleep is very crucial for physical development and mental health of children and youth. However, the ongoing sleep deprivation problem here in Hong Kong actually results in difficulties for these students to have more concentration and it contributes to a shortened attention span, memory impairment, and also affects their academic performance in general. So I also wanted to share briefly about what happened when my daughter was actually in um, primary school. Um, her primary school teacher had asked the class and asked them, can can you please raise up your hand, any student here in this classroom who sleeps before 9 p.m.? And it's sad to say it was my daughter who's the only person in the class. She said, Mom, I looked around the classroom and I was the only person sleeping at 9 a.m. And actually at that time, she was only about eight years old. 
So um, that gives us a general indication, and that's been a year, um, more than a decade ago, Paul. So I guess now, according to studies in the Chinese university, it's become even worse. So uh, I would like to ask you, Paul, uh, well, in Hong Kong here, we have a notoriously competitive school environment. And um, I would like to ask you your opinion from your point of view as a teacher, what challenges exist today in our education system? Well, Melissa, I think that what you shared there, even from 10 years ago, is obviously still a huge problem today, isn't it? And I think that the first thing that comes to mind when we think about the challenges for our education system, the consequences for well-being and sleep in particular, always come back to children's and young people's readiness to learn. And that's a big concern, I think, for educators in all sectors. And the same could be said, I think, in a higher education context as well. When you've got a lack of sleep or um, routines that don't foster well-being or that could um, exacerbate stress and anxiety, which again is related to sleep as well, I guess, that does have big consequences for how ready students and children and young people are, how ready they are to come into school and engage with the learning of the day in particular. But I think a big concern and a, I guess a growing emphasis in schools across Hong Kong and across the world is a focus on well-being. And actually, well, what does that look like? How does what we do at school foster a sense of well-being? Um, how do we help children, young people and their families understand well-being and take action to make sure they stay healthy and well, uh, both physically and mentally? I think also the big challenge when it comes to sleep and other aspects of well-being is the implications it has for how students interact and how they communicate and their sociability with others when they're in school as well. So this is a really big challenge because obviously as education and learning and teaching develops as we grow in our understanding of what effective learning and teaching looks like, a big emphasis is on collaboration and interaction. And if students are coming to school extremely tired, not having slept well, or still in poor routines when it comes to the, how they manage their day, then actually that becomes even more challenging. And if that's integral to the learning process, then that will have consequences for how they learn, what they achieve, what they attain, and the progress they can make as well. So I guess another big connection is generally to what students are able to attain throughout their time in education, but also their broader achievements as well. That actually, if we see the, I guess, the emphasis in Hong Kong, especially on um, academic attainment, and actually the consequences for engaging in um, sports, other extracurricular activity, which might not be tied to some of the foundation subjects that parents might want to emphasize, then that can lead to, I guess, a limitation put on children in terms of what they can engage with and what they might achieve later as well. But I guess for me, what I see regularly working with young people and working with teachers as well, is that actually what it tends to emphasize, one of our biggest challenges that we need to deal with now, and this is not just a, only as a consequence of the pandemic, it's actually a consequence just of how the world has changed, is the levels of anxiety, the levels of stress, and even just the lack of perspective that can come with that, um, and how students make sense of that when they're in school. But also the, the need for schools and for teachers to work with students and with families to help develop, I guess, skills in self-regulation and self-management so that actually students are not only prepared to learn and to attain at school, but actually they have the broader life skills they need to be able to engage in learning as well. And the reason I think that's growing in importance in the education sector is because there's a growing recognition that this will have long-term consequences. So the habits and the routines that they develop when they're at school 
and their habits when they're studying in primary or secondary school will then go on to have consequences for what they do post-school as well. So I think overall there's a lot that um, are a lot of challenges that are posed for the education sector just now, but I'm reassured by the fact that um, there's lots happening to kind of work on these challenges and tackle these head on as well, which is exciting. Wow, well, that's really amazing. And uh, of course, from a perspective of your expertise and experience as an educator, uh, that definitely gives you that broader picture of seeing the balance that has to be attained. I love how you mentioned earlier about academic attainment. And surely that is a big priority for families. Very understandable, especially um, in the society that we exist in today. But you also mentioned about the importance of having a physical and mental as well as emotional well-being because of the anxieties that are facing students as well. Um, may I also ask you in relation to that, if you were, for example, talking to me as a parent or to those parents out there, uh, would you have any suggestion on how we can balance those two together of how a student can achieve that mental well-being, but still be responsible in regards to their academic pursuits? Yeah, and I think this is all, this is a notoriously difficult one, because I think the first thing that it comes down to is, and I think it's a shared responsibility between families and schools, and the emphasis has to be on how um, parents and families are engaged in the school. So I think the first thing would be is maybe a reflective question for parents themselves about, well, how much do I know about what my child's doing at school? What are the priorities right now? Where are they at in their learning? What are their next steps? And how does this relate to the examinations or the assessments they're going to be doing? Because I think the first thing that has to happen if we are gonna find any sort of balance is being able to make a choice or make a decision on what is the priority or what are the priorities. And then if we're clear on what the priorities are, then it's a little bit easier to start to map out, right, well, what could this look like? And what would I be doing to start with? And what can I leave until later on? So I think the one thing that I've always found useful working with parents in particular is being able to identify, right, okay, well, if you know that this is a particular learning need for your child, and this is what the school are doing, this is what they've asked you to do at home, what are some of the other areas that actually they're doing quite well in and that could be, I guess, part just now or don't need the daily repetitive uh, revision? Because maybe you could actually spend that time more on something that is a particular target. And there, there's also a balance of finding, right, your child might be very good in maths, um, but maybe they do still need some regular revision, whereas maybe they're good with English, but actually they don't need the regular revision. They could just be reading uh, for pleasure every so often, for example. Because I think in this way, being able to know what the priorities are, you can then prioritise the use of time. And then you can also prioritise where some additional support is needed. So I know frequently parents might um, deviate towards, okay, extra tuition or additional support for every single curriculum area, just to be sure. Whereas what I would suggest is don't just be sure, actually just try and think very carefully and work with your child's school or teacher to be super clear on, right, well, what are the priorities? And then where can we target the additional support and the additional effort? Because I think what's in some cases um, that can be quite worrying is the level of extra tuition that's happening in the evenings, but also at the weekends as well. And that's at the expense of physical activity, time together as a family, which will all actually have positive implications, yes, for personal, social, and emotional well-being but will also have positive consequences for how they engage at school and by consequence their academic attainment as well. So I think it's just clear, regular, open communication with the school as far as possible 
and then prioritizing the additional effort you might put in at home so it's targeted towards what the actual needs are rather than just covering all bases to be sure. I wish all teachers uh, think like you. That's amazing. That's a very highly motivational way to look at it and also to work uh, in tandem with these parents so they can be able to identify those particular needs rather than looking at it from a very um, panic perspective of, of my child just has to excel above everyone else and uh, look at it in a more balanced way to see what are the actual needs and also those areas in which their child has that potential to excel. But, you know, uh, here in Hong Kong, um, there's also this, um, well, sadly, it's a derogatory term, but it's been widely accepted here about having monster parents. <laughs> and um, I think maybe not just here in Hong Kong, but I'm sure other countries too, but particularly here, a lot of parents can be um, very competitive, ultra competitive. I know of some colleague who even told me that when their kids are having exam, they, they also vomit out of <laughs> anxiety. So they share that anxiety. It's, it's, it's very real here. And um, there's definitely increasing pressure for their children to succeed. And it's also now affecting the well-being of parents. Uh, can you share um, from your perspective, shed some light on this and um, how maybe we can address it, especially that we're acknowledging that it actually exists here in Hong Kong? Mm -hmm. No, I think it's, it's super interesting, Melissa, because it's it's a very real phenomena. But I do, I mean, I think that it's quite clear as it a negative one. And I always think this negative connotation is unhelpful, but it does allude to some of the challenges that I think parents do face. And I think for me, the first thing when I hear about this, and actually it was not necessarily a brand new phenomena um, when I moved to Hong Kong, but it was a very different version of it in Hong Kong for sure. And I think what comes, where it, where it originates, I think, is parents' desire to succeed. And I think that it's not necessarily their desire for their children to succeed, but it's their parents' desire for their children to do better than they did, or to attain even better, or to succeed even more than they did as well. And I think that coming from that lens, it's about presuming there's a positive intention behind it, whereas I think the major, more times than not, there is a positive intention behind it. And I think it's about then understanding that, right, well, the assumptions that parents are basing their decisions on come from somewhere. So whether it's right, this form of academic attainment is the most important, this level of tuition is more important, or this is what my child needs to succeed. So we need to spend time to understand what are the assumptions that parents are basing their decisions on. And then I think what needs to happen next after that, where schools will play a part, but it's probably also a broader um, responsibility we have and with other organizations as well. It's about how do we raise the collective awareness of the impact their decisions can have on their children now and later, but what impact does it also have on the broader education community, kind of reinforcing some of these assumptions of ideas. And I think by raising that awareness collectively of the impact that this decision-making can have on the well-being, but also the future consequences for their children, positive and negative, then I think what we could do is maybe reach a more pragmatic and collective approach to how we plan for the learning, the attainment and the success of young people that reflects more of an understanding of balance of supporting well-being while also still remaining focused on strong academic achievement. I think what's important to remember with this as well is that people believe what they perceive or what they assume and then they act upon what they believe. So it's perception and it's assumption that's informing people's actions. 
So I think that until we address what some of these assumptions and perceptions are and start to try and shift some of those to be maybe a bit healthier or to be a bit more reflective of what we know about how children grow, learn and develop, if we can do that, then gradually we'll get to a space that's perhaps a bit more healthy for everyone. And I think that, again, I'll go back to re-emphasising that it's parental engagement in the life and the learning of the school, the clarity of their child's progress, their next steps and expectations. And having that, then parents can make more informed and more balanced and more pragmatic decisions about the expectations that they might place upon their children or what schools should be placing upon their children. But I think especially it'll help with the expectations they place upon them and particularly with extracurricular activity and the workload that's placed on them out with the school hours as well. Yes, uh, very insightful there, what we've learned from what you just said. And uh, actually, uh, I've now just suddenly um, been enlightened about this situation. I, I did always think that it was always a negative thing regarding this uh, monster parent. But now from your explanation, I realized uh, it's not necessarily monstrous, but also motherly. There's something behind it as well, like a very parental instinct that we really want to push for the success of that. For our children, it's definitely a positive and a noble thing to, to want to, to achieve for your child. Mm -hmm. But uh, definitely, yes, uh, this kind of an attitude can also go on an extreme measure if, as you said, uh, there's no sense of balance, there is also um, no good communication, wherein, as you said, if uh, they are very well aware of um, the needs, then hopefully their children as well as they themselves can be able to sleep better at night and eventually contributing to good uh, alertness and resulting in good academic performance also on a consistent and also long-term basis. So what you shared is uh, really great, definitely hopefully can help parents to have a more balanced point of view. So in this way, since uh, I realize you see the bigger picture more than most, most of us, I mean, you've already enlightened me regarding this uh, phenomenon, which is great, thank you so much. I would also like to turn the tables and maybe ask if you were a student living in this uh, time, period, given all of the challenges and given the typical workload and pressures that students face. Uh, Paul, how would you plan your schedule, for example, so that you can be balanced and achieve enough, enough sleep as well? No, that's, that's a tough one and something I think I'm still balancing as an adult as well. Um, but I think the first thing, it kind of takes me back a little bit to one of the earlier points. I think first, I would be trying to distinguish between what needs regular and consistent practice and what can be done at a later time. And that's not me just trying to procrastinate. I think it's about um, doing that in a sense of prioritizing what needs that regular time commitment and what I could place within a particular block of time later on. And I think then the third thing would also be about identifying what do I need additional support for? What do I know that I'm kind of struggling with and actually I could do with a tutor or I could do with some extra time with a teacher at school? And I think Categorizing in that way would help me tailor my approach to time management for each of the subjects or projects that I'm working on, but also would help me then to wait how much time I'm going to spend on each of these things as well. So if it is something daily that's a, a kind of revisiting and practicing, right, well, could that be 15, 30 minutes a day? Could that be something that I'm just doing on my commute into school? Could it be something that I'm doing as I'm eating breakfast? Or actually, can I then just block out these times? Because I think 
the key thing I'd be looking at is also, I guess, going on from that is planning the time where I'm going to have some downtime or switch off time. And I think that actually it could be that your commute into school, but it could be the first 30 minutes a day where you're going to have something quickly to eat or something to drink. That actually you don't need to be constantly revising or constantly going over something. You might choose to use that time just to completely switch off, have your own downtime. But I don't think there's anything wrong with actually scheduling that into your day, especially when you know it's going to be a tough period with lots of assessments or lots of revision or assignments to hand in actually blocking out that dedicated time for rest and relaxation or just a bit of downtime um, is important. I think that something that I only came across actually in my adult life, but now that I've used with some secondary students before, is a uh, Gantt charting, where actually you're blocking out some bigger blocks of time. It could be over a week, it could be over the term, it could be over the whole school year. Um, but I think mapping out those blocks of time for each subject, project, or any task that you've got within whatever given time period you want to map it out for, what I find would be helpful there is then you can see where the pressure points are going to be. So actually, if you've got a lot of assignments due at one time, you can see that on the chart and then decide, right, I'm going to move this preparation here, or maybe I'm going to complete that assignment a week in advance so that actually it gives me the time to focus on the next one or the one after that. Um, I think it's also helpful because then it's, you can pick out where you're going to plan in breaks or time to check in with your teachers or tutors to share a draft of your work or to ask some questions, but also to give yourself some buffer time so that you're not rushing everything at once right at the end as well. So, I mean, and I think the caveat with all of this as well is that these are things that I would look back on and think, right, I've now used these or I now think actually this would be useful um, when I was a student. It's about testing and trying different things. And you might use a combination of different tools or different ideas. It's about trying to test them and then come up with an approach that actually works for you. I love that about uh, how you mentioned time management and blocking off time. It reminded me of um, this book by Calvin Newport where he talks about deep focus. So allotting time, as you said, for certain subject, blocking off time, and then by doing that, they're able to realize area that they need to focus on more mm -hmm. and uh, area that also that they're already very good at and that they, they can prioritize their time accordingly. I love how you mentioned about time management and that's very crucial. Yeah. Uh, may I ask what time uh, classes start in your school, Paul? Yeah, so classes at my school start at 8.15 in the morning. Yes, I think that's uh, quite common uh, across the board for most of the schools. And uh, some Chinese university researchers are pushing for a 15 minute uh, time for later. I'm not sure if you're aware, but a lot of them in Hong Kong here are pushing for an 8.30 startup time. So for example, the, the university's assistant professor of pediatrics, Kate Chan Ching Ching, who later we might also invite on this podcast, is uh, wanting the time to be pushed to later because um, she also identifies that children would want to have that extra few minutes of sleep. And said he, she purports that this can help in their concentration, well-being, and their mood, and um, optimum performance levels through the day. But then again, some people, on the other hand, are saying that that can cut through their lunch, and then it will have a detrimental effect on their appetite. They cannot concentrate. So I'd love to have your point of view on what you think about this. Would it be workable? Would it be practical? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it would be practical. And I mean, I think the points, there's been lots of research in other places as well that look particularly at a later start um, time for, uh, for all age groups, actually. And I think that it definitely would be workable. And I think the point you make about um, lunches and snack times, etc. I think that's an important one, though. So I think it could we could um, prolong the start time of the school day. I think it would then also be looking at right, well, what periods do we include in for breaks, for playtime, for snacks, and then, uh, yes, of course, lunch as well. But I think that it could only be more, I think it could only be helpful by prolonging the start time of the school day. Because I think the earlier it is, then, of course, the earlier the commute has to start and for children as well, regardless of how close they might live to the school. I think that if we can prolong that later, we're more likely to have children and families that are going to then eat breakfast together at home um, or eat something at the start of the day, be able to sleep a little bit later. And all of that does have positive consequences for the remainder of the day. Um, it's just a matter of then also balancing in there that a lot of parents rely on the structure of the school day to plan the rest of their working day as well. And there's lots of pressures that are interrelated with that. Um, but again, I think this is something that's always best done in consultation with the community as well. So that if we were going to prolong the start time of the school day, that's a really important thing that we could be engaging families about as well um, to factor in what are some of the things that we can anticipate that could be the benefits, but also could be the challenges of doing that. What are some of the perspectives that could come from families and parents? Then by incorporating that into the decision making, it will make the decision that more effective, but also a more sustainable one as well. But broadly, it's definitely doable. In lots of places, I mean, in national systems and other places across the world, school start times aren't until 9 a.m. and would finish at 3 p.m. with your two breaks, one break in the morning, one in the afternoon, and a midday break for lunch. So it's definitely possible. Well, sounds good. That may help. Um, the one third of school children that are sleep deprived. Yeah, that's a proven fact actually now that uh, one third of them are having less than the required eight hours of sleep, especially for their age level. And uh, who knows uh, if there is enough uh, educators who will also push for this and enough parents who will be able to see the benefit of this for their children. And, and I love that. That also puts in the emotional well-being of not having such a rushed breakfast and having time, extra time with family in the morning. Sometimes that small 15-minute time frame can make a big difference for the overall well-being. So if you were able to envision an ideal school life, Paul, so that children, as you said, can have that mental, emotional, and physical health. Of course, it's not easy nowadays, but we can say that we can work toward it. If that ideal school life would be possible, what, can you give us some, a visual? <laughs> what would that look like? And maybe how would that change um, children's study habits and also their sleep habits, their well-being in general? Yeah, and this is, I think this is but it's a really tricky one, but it's a really exciting one as well, because systems are looking to change their approach to education and to schooling because we're in a period of, well, hopefully towards the tail end of a global health emergency. Um, but actually through what has been illustrated of what's possible for education and schooling because of the circumstance we've been in. So I think that in terms of if we're actually going to have or develop a school life that is ideal, particularly for mental, emotional, and physical health and well-being. The first thing that has to start with is much more effective and stronger approaches to family engagement with the school. And I think that there's an important distinction between, there's lots of um, discussion about parental involvement in school, 
but I want to emphasize parental engagement because involvement is just including them maybe in decisions or inviting them in now and then, but engagement is actually about how are they an engaged member and part of the school and how is that led not just by the school but by parents themselves as well. And I think that in doing so, we get greater and more important insight into the lives of the students that the school is serving. And then we're able to make better decisions that reflect a more sophisticated understanding of what their lives actually look like and what they need from their time at school. I think another thing, and this is getting into some of the specifics, I guess, would be um, more student-led reporting to parents. So actually, when you get to the end of a unit or in a particular subject, what ownership do students have to, in partnership with their teacher, report back to parents on the progress they've made. Because as a leader in a school, I would be observing that to think about, right, well, what can students actually articulate about what they've just done over this period of time in that class? And what do they actually understand about themselves as a learner in maths or in English or in science? And do they know what their next steps actually are? Because having that understanding will be so important for their own emotional well-being in terms of do they feel secure right i know where i am i know where i'm going next i know who i can speak to if i need help and i know where i need to focus my efforts on because i think so much of the pressure and the stress that students and parents alike face just now can often stem from uncertainty or a lack of clarity about how they're actually doing at school or what they actually need to do to get better and I think this then connects with our approach to how we assess students and how we award qualifications. I think that I'm not an advocate to get rid of standardised testing, even though I know there's lots of people that um, do advocate for that. I think standardised testing does have a place in our education system, but I think we need to rethink the form that it takes. Um, I think that too often are not relying on a paper-based timed exam doesn't actually give students the opportunity to reflect what their understanding and what their learning has been over a period of time. I think we've seen in some examples, for example, with the International Baccalaureate, we've seen a revision of qualifications in Wales, for example. There's lots of places and systems around the world that have changed their qualifications so that it's much more about maybe it could be projects they're engaging in or it could be um, essays that they're working on over an extended period of time where they get the chance to actually demonstrate their, not just their knowledge and what they can remember within the period of a timed exam, but actually demonstrate how they can combine that knowledge and skills that they've learned. And we can look at what they've actually attained and achieved using some standardized benchmarks or criteria. So the emphasis there would be an ideal system would be a move away from the standardized timed exams to, I guess, more, more forms of assessment reflect how children are actually learning. They're not learning by completing these tests and by completing these exams. They're learning by engaging with material, engaging with each other, um, being creative with what they, the output of that then is as well. I think it'd be good to see that within the assessment system as well. And I guess connected to that would be, we need to reconsider the timing of assessments as well. I think particularly the end of secondary school, where we have multiple exams for pretty much every single subject or every qualification route that a child is on. I think that that just creates far too much time pressure and stress and anxiety unnecessarily. So I think we could be looking at particular subjects or particular areas where we could vary the timing of these assessments so that actually we can reduce the volume of pressure points that young people have to experience as well. And I think that as a consequence of the pandemic, that is something that I think we've shown is definitely possible. Examinations couldn't happen in many places over this year and last year 
Um, and so they had to look at alternative models of assessing. So it's definitely possible. And I think that in terms of an ideal model, um, particularly focusing on the mental, emotional, and physical health of young people, we could be looking at more blended models of schooling. So actually, do we give um, students and families more flexibility where they could be spending more time at home engaging online if that's something that many could be more comfortable with while still giving students and families the opportunity to be on campus periodically as well because I think okay online learning or even the blended approach to learning in Hong Kong didn't work for everybody but there were some that absolutely flourished in that environment so I think it's about trying to spend a bit more time there's some exciting work happening at the University of Hong Kong led by Professor Nancy Law looking at um, student engagement and online learning in Hong Kong, a longitudinal study. And I think to hear some of the outcomes from that in a few years' time will be super interesting. But I think ultimately what we can be thinking about right now um, in schools in particular is about the flexibility and timing and assessments and um, the assignments that we give, how we engage with families, how we communicate with them. And I think for families then it would be about taking some of the lessons from the pandemic as well, about ensuring there's good routines at home for sleep in particular, but just to maintain broader well-being. So about ensuring that there are strict boundaries set and that you try and stick to them as much as possible. And part of that is about making rest time non-negotiable. And I think what's important to highlight is that sometimes that rest, okay, it might be closing your eyes for a while, maybe taking a walk, um, eating together. It could be actually just spending some time watching Netflix and okay, it's a screen again, but that's okay if it's part of the day. And I think it's about making sure that rest time is built into the daily schedule because in that way, it'll be guilt-free. I think, I think we can all agree that when we've got big workloads or particular pressure days, when you do stop for a minute, you're always still thinking, oh, I should go and do this or I've still not finished that. Whereas if it's part of your day, you know, right, this is guilt-free and I can just do that. I think the other things that I'm sure you've talked about before as well, Melissa, is about thinking about the space that you're in as well. I always find for myself personally, the space I've got for sleep is so important and how that's a different spot to where I might be working um, or where I might associate some of the pressures of my work life. So where it's possible, I would be encouraging families to set up designated workspaces that ideally would not be in the bedroom. Whereas of course in Hong Kong, we've got issues with space. So if it does have to be in the bedroom, making sure that it's a demarcated space. So it's not that right, you might be sitting in your bed working on something and then you've kind of got it all spread out all over the place. But I think actually having that demarcated space for work, for rest, for sleep is really important. And just whether it's establishing or re-establishing some routines for a healthy approach and a healthy pattern for sleep, rest and relaxation. Beautiful. Thank you very much for those great tips. And, you know, you make me want to go back to school just, you know, uh, because of just what you said. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners would want to have that school life. I mean, if I could have that, I would definitely go back. And It's wonderful to have this idea of um, even the blended learning that you mentioned that where parents are also involved and that guilt-free time where sometimes you can go to a museum as a family, learn together. And, uh, also, the timing is very important about the exams, the reducing the anxiety that, yes, they can still go through these examinations and assessments, but also the fact that they're spaced out in a very healthy way that gives the student time to be able to hone their skill, to hone their learning, to consolidate all their memory and be able to do well. It's not spacing it in such a way that they can do well. 
And also, I, I, I really love everything that you said, because it shows that it has the capacity, instead of the students and parents being a victim of our educational system, they are now empowered with what you said. They have the empowerment to take charge of uh, what they're learning. It gives a, give them that impetus to really be able to identify what they're skilled at and develop that instead of so negative. You really, uh, by what you said, show that it actually is possible. I mean, we're not in a perfect world, but even with all of the challenges of the health issue facing us today, if educators and students and parents work together and be able to uh, find these ways wherein they can definitely improve certain systems, then wow, that would be such a big help. And uh, thank you very, very much, uh, Paul, we've learned so much as uh, all the information I told you I want to go back to school now uh, because of um, all of these uh, insights that you showed and um, instead of thinking in a negative way you actually help us to see the future with more confidence hopefully children who listen in parents who listen in will be able to realize that uh, they don't necessarily have to be a victim they can actually do something they can actually step up and find ways and uh I always love to end uh, the program with all of the wonderful tips that we've learned. So I would love to share three tips uh, to the parents and children out there with everything that uh, we've learned, especially from, from you, Paul. Uh, so the first one would definitely be um, setting up a regular schedule and a good environment. As you said, demarcation is very important. Totally, we are faced with a difficulty of small spaces here in Hong Kong. But if you could have a little desk on the side that is designated for your study, then you don't have to associate the bed with something that is so serious and stressful and um, associating it with uh, studies and memorizing. The bed is definitely a place for relaxation and it is your respite from your studies in all actuality. So definitely setting that uh, specific line wherein the bed is just purely for your relaxation and recuperation, then you will be able to sleep deeper and in a more relaxed state. And also I do believe secondly in a psychoeducational uh, intervention as well. So if both uh, the children and parents are educated in such a way and that they realize that if you're sleeping less at night, it could even be more detrimental to your study not only for your mental health, but physical as well. For example, you could have thicker artery walls, indication of a risk that you could have other diseases in the future, not only uh, neurodegenerative uh, cognitive diseases, but also uh, coronary. So there's a lot of things that can result to that. So if it doesn't have to be something that scares you, but something that you're aware of, the reality of being sleep deprived. So if they're aware of this, knowing that they can perform better in their exam, if they do take control of their sleep schedule, that would definitely be a big help. And uh, thirdly, definitely, I would also love to recommend a good schedule. I know a lot of children because uh, of the studies conducted here in Hong Kong of the sleep researchers, that they tend to sleep very less during the weekday because of the school schedule. And they tend to overcompensate in the weekend. And then they tend to sleep in. And that definitely uh, causes an imbalance of their biological clock. So it's not really healthy to sleep 
let's say six hours during the weekday and suddenly sleep 10 to 12 hours during the weekend, I would definitely recommend for them to have a regular schedule. Once they're very well aware that they need to have this eight hour sleep to perform well in school, then uh, hopefully they can have that schedule on a daily basis. Surely it's not an easy thing, but to take control, to be aware and to try their very best, uh, definitely that will help them to perform better. And hopefully uh, teachers, educator like Paul will see better grades, <laughs> better performance, happier students, a better school environment. And uh, definitely we can all work toward that. There's always a room for improvement for our sleep and for our academic performance. Uh, thank you so, so much, Paul. I learned a lot and um, I, you've restored my <laughs> faith in the educational system. I mean, it's not easy and uh, it's just but normal to face challenges. It's but normal for parents to feel this sense of um, wanting to control uh, their children. It's always because of uh, definitely it's stemming from love and wanting their children to perform at their very best level. So totally understandable on that. Thank you. Thank you for giving such great insight. Um, looking forward to hopefully in the future we see this ideal school system maybe being implemented in Hong Kong with your help, your work, your good work and your support. Me too. Thanks so much for having me, Melissa. Thank you. Thank you so much, Paul, and hope to get to chat with you again next time. Thank you for the wonderful insights.